Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so good to... Uh yeah, just worship with you and, and be together, and it's uh, starting to be beautiful weather out, so that's always nice. Um, have you ever heard the Christian term? It's sort of a Christianese word. Uh, it's a term called divine appointment. Have you ever heard that term, a divine appointment? Okay, it's, it, you know, if you're not familiar with it, it's a term used by Christians when they speak of an encounter or a meeting with someone which was inspired and, and they were led by God into this encounter, this conversation. One of the, and some of these stories are really incredible. I want to share one with you. One of these divine encounter stories I heard of was of a missionary uh, in, in the northern part of China who woke up one morning with a really strong impression that he was to pack a, a backpack and a suitcase full of as many Bibles as it could hold, and he was to go to a northern Chinese city, which wasn't that far from him. He could get there pretty quickly, and he was supposed to go and stand uh, in, in the main kind of thoroughfare through the city and just wait there. That was the impression on his heart when he woke up. He couldn't get that thought out of his head, so he packed up his suitcase and his backpack with as many Bibles. Bibles as he could carry, and he went and he stood on the corner uh, in this large Chinese city. And as he stood on that corner, two Chinese men saw him and came straight towards him. Uh, he had never met them before, and one of the Chinese men explained that three days before they had arrived in the city, they were from a, a farther out village, and one of the men had a dream that there would be a man who had Bibles. He would be on the street corner, and he said, you're the man in my dream. I recognize you. And the exchange of Bibles happened. That's a God-ordained meeting, right? Using an impression upon the heart, using a vision or a dream to orchestrate something that God wants done. I love the incredible stories of divine encounters and, and, and appointments, but some of these are more subtle. Maybe you run into someone at the store. You start a conversation with them and and, and this conversation soon turns more serious, and, and you leave that store knowing that you didn't run into that person by accident, that there was a reason that you were there and they were there, and you had these words of, of wisdom or grace or truth that, that you think took root and, and landed. And we can have these divine appointments with people because the Holy Spirit resides within us. It's the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us, right? Paul talks about he wanted to go into one area, the Spirit said no, so he had a dream about a man in Macedonia and he went there. Because of the Holy Spirit, we can have these types of encounters. All of us can have these types of encounters. And I believe some of the encounters that Jesus had with people were like these divine appointments. Jesus went to the places where there were certain people that he needed to meet, either to heal them or to set them free from the demonic or to simply give his, his words of teaching. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well is one of these divine appointments. Our text opens up with these words. Jesus had to go through Samaria. I didn't give the rest of the text because uh, I just want to give you some of the context and culture behind this because this is sort of a, if you were a Jewish reader reading this, this would be a very unexpected and amusing verse to read because any respectable religious Jewish teacher hated the region to the north called Samaria, absolutely despised Samaria. No Jewish man would claim they had to go through Samaria. Like if they said, boy, the quickest route to get to this place is to go through Samaria, 
They wouldn't say we have to go through Samaria. They'd say we have to find a way around Samaria. There was actually for Jewish rabbis, they said, if the dust of Samaria touches your sandals, make sure you shake it off before entering into the Holy Land. We don't even want the dust of Samaria uh, to, to touch us. So religious rabbis would actually go out of their way to avoid going to Samaria. Like they would add time to their journey so that they wouldn't have to go into Samaria. So it's pretty funny that it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. You're like, whoa, that's a bad place to go in, in kind of that first century Jewish mind. Now, Samaria was hated because as far as the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans were ethnic half-breeds they were, who were spiritually bankrupt. That's how the Jewish people thought of them. Because the Samaritans were a group of half-Jewish people who had intermarried with the pagan nations and formed their own kind of form of Judaism that mixed the Jewish faith with other elements. The Samaritans rejected any prophetic book of, of Scripture and held only to the first five books, the books of Moses, right? So the Torah, the first five. And so first century Jewish people regarded Samaritans as like the worst of the human race and had no dealings with them. Now the Jewish people didn't like the Romans. They really didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans would insist that their worship of God was right. The Jews disagreed with that. And there was just like hundreds of years of ongoing hostility, bitterness, and hatred that you could actually trace uh, through the history of the Jewish people of how, how they hated one another. Yet John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, and most Jewish rabbis would say they had to avoid Samaria, not go through it. And I believe in this instance that Samaria, one of, I mean, Jesus did a lot in Samaria, but one of the the main appointments was with this woman at the well. Uh, This was a a divinely inspired encounter. And And the reason I say this is a divine appointment is because Jesus did the Father's will only, right? He said, I've come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And we also know that Jesus was often led by the Spirit himself. It says in Scripture that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus then returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news spread about him through the whole countryside. Can I just make a really quick side note? The same Holy Spirit that led Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that resides within us. And so just as Jesus was led to the people and places that the Father had willed for him, so we too can be led by the Spirit to the people and places that God has planned for us. And so I would say this this meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well, you could read it in Scripture like some sort of an accident. There just happened to be a woman at the well that day. This was not an accident. This was not an accidental meeting. This was a divinely appointed interaction. So let's get into the text a little further. Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Remember what I said, they hate each other. The Samaritan woman is rightly confused here because, of course, Jews don't associate with Samaritans and men do not talk to women alone at a well in this culture. You don't do that. That's not something that's proper. But Jesus has an important message for this woman. And here's what I want to pick out of this is that Jesus crosses racial, cultural, and gender barriers to bring life to a parched heart. Jesus always does this. He doesn't care about who society says is worthy or unworthy of his time. He goes to the people who need to hear the message. 
to the ones who will respond to the message. And the religious people of the day are offended because Jesus is so willing to talk to the outcasts and the ones that they consider sinners. But Jesus has a message for weary and broken hearts, and he doesn't care what the religious elite think about that. So the question for us who call ourselves followers of Jesus is, are we willing to be like Jesus and go to those whom the world looks down on? Or go to those whom the church, the modern-day religious elite, has historically looked down on? And not to go in to condemn them, because Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So not to go in and say, boy, you've really messed it up. You better get your life on track. Not that. But to go and say, do you want a life that is abundant? Do you want a life that is everlasting? Do you want to be free from the things that bind you? We're not coming in shaking the finger saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. We all kind of know that we got some stuff wrong in us. But we're going in and saying, we've found life. Life abundant and life eternal. Can I tell you about that hope that I have? So are we willing to go to those whom the church has looked down on? You can fill in the blank, the prisoner, the homeless, the poor, the atheist, whoever it is. Because that's where Jesus is found. Jesus was so often amongst the outsiders of the community, the ones called sinners by the Pharisees, that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was so often amongst those people. And worst of all, to their minds, they thought this was an insult It wasn't an insult, but they would say, he's a friend of sinners. Can you believe it? It's not an insult, but for them, there's like, that's the worst insult they can think of. I think that's the highest compliment. I would love it if some religious, you know, kind of tightly wound person said, well, you just hang out with sinners all the time. Fantastic. I'm a sinner too, by the way. So are you. The only difference is I'm a sinner saved by grace, and so I can extend that grace that I have found to other lost people looking for hope. That's my goal. That's what I do. I'd love that. And so what a witness we would be if, like Jesus, we'd be considered friends of the ones on the margins, friends of the ones the church has historically looked down on. I think if, you know, some people in our religious circles criticized us for our friendliness with those on the outside, I think we're probably in pretty good company. I think that's where Jesus would be. That's what he got criticized for. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus answers this woman at the well, who asks how he could possibly be asking her for a drink. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I think our natural question here is just, who is this woman? And why is Jesus appointed to meet her here and offer her living water? And what is living water? We'll we'll get to the living water part. Let's just jump ahead a few verses to get some context as to who this woman was. So we're just going to jump ahead a few verses. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. When the woman affirms that she's had five husbands, it it sounds like she's confessing to, like, a lot of sexual immorality. 
It sounds like, from our modern reading, that she's treated marriage flippantly in the past, and she's now cohabitating with a man she's not married to. However, I really doubt that this is the case. And we can make some logical assumptions about her life based on what we know about the culture of that day. First of all, it seems really unlikely she would have been divorced five times. Not many men would be willing to marry a woman who'd been divorced even once. Never mind five times, right? They would say, well, what's wrong with you in that culture, right? They'd say something seems a little off. They wouldn't want to do that. So that's not to say she wasn't ever divorced, but it's probably not a case of five divorces. It's probably more a case that she lost a lot of husbands to early death, whether that was workplace accidents or disease or, or abandoned on the road. She's probably had some death occur and then you know, get remarried because it's not a divorce. There's no shame attached to that. Uh, but maybe there was a divorce in there somewhere. Maybe the last one was a divorce. And that's maybe why she's now living with a man she's not married to. But there's, and let's talk about this. The, the man she's not married to, she, there's probably some shame attached to that. Because she's out there collecting water at a very weird time of day, the hottest time of day. That's not when you collect water. You don't want to lug a heavy jar of water back at the hottest time of day. The women always went early in the morning to get water. Why is she there at the hottest time of day? Probably to avoid running into the women from the, from the village. It could be because she's ashamed of, of how she's now living. It could be depression as life has not really gone the way she planned. And perhaps being around other women who have you know, more normal life and, and marriage is, is a reminder of the things that she's lost or never had. And we can wonder why this man she's living with wouldn't marry her. But I think we need to be more critical of the man that she's living with than this woman. Because let's again remember gender roles in that society. As a woman in that society, if her family is dead, or if she's far away from them, and if her last husband died or divorced her, she might not have any other options available to her except go to a man who will take her in yet refuse to marry her. It may be the case that it's either she begs for scraps on the street or lives with a man who refuses to marry her because what else is she going to do? Now, if you're really hard-hearted, I guess you could say, better beg for scraps on the street, but I would say it's a lot harder to do something like that when it's you. Or there's a man who says, yeah, I'll take you in. I'm not going to marry you. It's not a great option, but maybe it's her only option. Now, some of that background is speculative, But we're trying to make an educated guess based on what we know about the society of the day and the context of what's really going on in her life. But what we do know for sure, what I think is very clear in the text, is that this woman has had a hard life. No doubt her heart is broken and wounded in ways that she can't fix. There's been death, there's been divorce, probably some kind of divorce and then death in there, and, and she's seeking help by living with a man to whom she's not formally married who won't marry her. Her life has been difficult. She's weary, she's burdened, and Jesus has a divine appointment to give her hope. He knows at this point, you know, he knows all this stuff about her, so he knows that her heart is hurting. He knows that she's empty, that she thirsts for more than what life has given her. You can see in, the, in this woman's responses that she's on guard, she's defensive. You'll meet those people who've gone through really hard things in their life, and, and sometimes that makes them softer, and for some people it makes them very 
hard on the outside. They're very defensive. They kind of answer everything with a snap, right? And they're, they're kind of quick to, to be defensive and on guard. And, and I think that's really what you're, you're finding with this woman. Like a lot of people who've experienced pain or trauma and, and maybe are embarrassed by their life situation, she's not volunteering information easily. She even seems a little bit rude. Uh, Dan Meyer pulls out this dynamic in the conversation. He says, Jesus starts this conversation with a really simple request. Will you give me a drink? But that question is like getting, you know, it's like hitting a brick wall. She snaps back. Well, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Just really quick, really abrupt. Why are you here? And Jesus answers her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, he would have asked them and he would have given you living water. I mean, all he's saying is he's saying, hey, what I'm asking for is a chance to give you what you're really looking for. I know you're thirsty. I know you're thirsty for something you're not going to find in this well. But the woman, again, just seems so defensive, right? She doesn't want this conversation. Look, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Right? There's just this quick abruptness to her, her answers. Do you, and basically what she's saying, like, do you really think you're going to meet my needs? Do you really think you're better than good old St. Jacob who gave us this well? And then Jesus finds a way to get her to open up and hear him. He, he starts to tell her that he can meet the deepest thirst in her life and fill her up to overflowing with an eternal source of life. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And for a moment, the woman starts to open up. She says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here. She still doesn't know what Jesus is really talking about. She still thinks it's about physical water. But I think they're starting to get an inkling in her mind that there's something more going on here than just physical water and physical thirst. Because she does long for something that will satisfy her. She's had a hard life. She's probably made some mistakes along the way too. And like many people, she might be wondering at this point in her life, five husbands down the road, living with a man who refuses to marry her, she might be wondering, is this all there is to life? Is this my life? I sneak out to the well at the hottest time of day so I don't run into any of the women from the village. Is this my life? Is this how I live? And Jesus comes and he says, well, I can give you something that will satisfy you. That will even bring you life everlasting. I think the woman at the well does seem a little bit cold and rude and a little bit harsh in her answers. But when we try to understand her, we start to see that wounded heart, that difficult life. And it doesn't really matter what it was, whether it was sexual promiscuity or the death of her spouse or cruel husbands who were quick to divorce. The reality is she's been wounded. Her heart's been broken. There's more going on beneath the surface here than just a grumpy woman at the well. And most people have more going on under the surface than we realize. And as a pastor, I, I kind of have the privilege of, of hearing some of those deep issues and, and wounds that, that people try and cover up. And it's, they try and cover it up because, I mean, maybe they're ashamed of it or it's so painful, but they need someone to tell. And, and so sometimes you meet these people with these really hard exteriors. They, they seem a bit cold, rude, or, or uh, distant, but what they're really doing is they've given us so much pain inside that they want to be on the defensive. And so because I hear all these deep issues and wounds, I've become a lot less judgmental over the past few years. What a person says or does on the outside is often a manifestation of deep wounds or brokenness on the inside. And, and our job, and my job specifically, 
is not to condemn people, but to help them see Jesus, who is the healer, the sanctifier, the redeemer. It's really, really easy to tell people how wrong and bad they are. But that's actually not our job. Our job is to point broken people, ourselves included, to Jesus, who's the healer, the redeemer, the sanctifier, the savior. Most people who come talk to me don't need me to shame them. They need me to show them a way out of shame. And not all woundedness or brokenness manifests in, in, you know, kind of the negative things. We think of people who are really broken or hurting, and we think, oh, that's, you know, those are the people who end up homeless or in drug addiction or in sexual promiscuity. But can I tell you that a lot of people who seem to have it all together also have underlying soul issues that impact the way they live? Dan Meyer shares two stories as an example. He says, I know a woman whose life looks like a perfectly manicured lawn. Everything in her life looks trim and bordered. There's not ever a hair out of place. There is the appearance of complete perfection in her life. What none of her neighbors know is the childhood she had, the constant moving from one foster home to another, a desperate longing for a real home and and a parent who would love her unconditionally. And at the bottom of her heart, Underneath all the perfect, you know, perfectly put together, perfectly organized house, underneath that surface is a terrible fear that she can never be allowed to make mistakes, that she must be perfect, or once again she'll be told to move on. Now she works feverishly to keep up appearances, and when the pressure gets too much, she goes on an alcohol binge. Nobody knows. Dan says, in my own life, he says, I've been driven far too much by something that got broken in my heart when I was very young. He says, as the child of a very successful family, I absorbed the message very early on that I am what I do, or I am what I accomplish. My family never intended my heart to be shaped this way, but my heart developed around that message nonetheless. And I came to believe that my virtue and my value are directly related to how competent I am in getting good grades, in speaking well, in being a good athlete or leader, and in pleasing people with my performance. He said, the problem is now it's made me a relentless achiever and a workaholic. And I live with a relentless anxiety that I always need to do more, that I'm never doing enough. He said, it hurts my immediate family and it hurts my, co- my colleagues far too often. And so what we need is we need Jesus. We need Jesus to come into those places of brokenness and say, You are loved because I love you, not because of what you do, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done. The answer to healing broken and wounded hearts is Jesus. He's the one who provides truth and perspective to our lives. He's the one who says the things we strive for are not really worth striving after. He's the one who says, come to me if you're weary and burdened and I will give you rest. What a joy it is when we can lift our eyes off of our past and and off of our present circumstances and look up to the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is gentle and merciful. Because here's the truth of the human condition, is that without Jesus, we are always looking for satisfaction in places where it cannot be found. Instead of streams of living water, we return to cracked and broken cisterns. The soul is restless. It looks for things to fill it. 
For some people, what fills them up is work and career. For others, it's more possessions. For others, they're simply looking for the next good time, the drugs, alcohol, or sex, or what they run to. And all of these things give temporary relief, but, but never lasting satisfaction. And most of these things will harm us and drain us of life in the long run. And Jesus says what this woman needs, what we all need, is the living water that only he provides. Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So now let's talk about the living water. What is this living water that Jesus provides? The living water that Jesus offers us is the Holy Spirit. We see this later in John's gospel. It's in John chapter 7. It says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. You see some echoes with the John chapter 4 passage. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him later were to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not been glorified. But that's what he's promising this woman. If you put your faith in me, you will receive the living water. The living water in John chapter seven, we're told, is the Holy Spirit. The scripture uses different symbols for the Holy Spirit, but one of the symbols that's frequently used is that symbol of flowing water or living water. And so just as water refreshes us, especially when we're hot and thirsty, so the Holy Spirit refreshes and renews our soul. Even a barren desert blooms to life when water comes through it. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of like California desert blooms, but they'll show a picture of like just this barren desert. And then they'll show a picture of it a week after it's rained for like two or three days. And it's like a field of flowers. And this is the picture of what the Holy Spirit does to the parched heart. You might feel barren and empty and dry and dusty. And all it takes is the Holy Spirit, the living water, to bring that to life. And I think water is used to symbolize the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit gives us life. And we cannot live for long without water. And, and, and water cleanses us. Titus 3.5, I think, captures this. It says, he saved us not by the righteous deeds we had done, but according to his mercy, by the washing and the new birth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us a new creation. The Holy Spirit also cleanses us and purifies us and keeps us pure. I think back to Ezekiel's prophecy um, when God says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. And the Lord also told Ezekiel, where the river flows everything will live. And it's only in the river of the living water that we can find lasting satisfaction, both life here and life eternal. And just as we need water to live, the Holy Spirit is essential to living our new life in Christ. This is maybe one of the things I think gets missed is, is we say, yes, come to Jesus, absolutely. And then we kind of leave people like, okay, now try really hard to be a good person. Wow, that's a, that's a tall order. We, we fail if we, if we neglect to mention, and you will receive, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will now empower you to live as you ought to live because you are a new creation in Christ. You've been born of the water and spirit. And so I just want to give a reminder 
for those of us who follow Jesus. It's a word from the Apostle Paul who tells us, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Because although the Holy Spirit resides within us and seals us for eternity, you can't lose the Holy Spirit. Don't let anyone tell you you can lose the Holy Spirit. You can't. That's Old Testament. That's not New Covenant. Holy Spirit seals you. However, we can get out of step with the Spirit. That's what Paul's warning here. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We can get out of step with the Spirit. We can get out of the fast flow of the living water and move into the shallows. We can get stuck. We can sometimes even climb out of the river. Scripture tells us that it's possible that we can quench the Spirit and we can grieve the Spirit. And so I'd encourage you today to remember that just as we need to drink water every day to keep our body healthy and alive, we're also dependent upon the Holy Spirit to keep our souls healthy and alive. Do not neglect coming to the Lord Jesus and the Father daily and asking um, for a, a, a filling of the Spirit, if I can put it like that. Every day, I want to be led by the Spirit who led Jesus. And that is not an impossible ask because that is what the Holy Spirit was sent to do, to guide you, convict you, to lead you, to remind you. So don't neglect the Holy Spirit and the fruit which comes from him. Jesus actually told his followers that it was better for them that he go and leave them because then the Holy Spirit would come. We'd say, boy, it would be so great if we could just walk beside Jesus today. And Jesus would actually say, actually, It's better that I'm gone because now the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's an incredible promise. That we actually become the temple of the living God by the Spirit within us. So let's not neglect the great gift the Father has given us, the gift of the Holy Spirit within us. And if you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit, maybe you're just not exactly sure what the Holy Spirit does in your life or the role that that the Spirit would play, I'd invite you to come to our Holy Spirit encounter in two weeks. And we're going to kind of dig deep into what it means to live uh, a faithful Jesus-following life, being led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. But let me close with this thought. The woman at the well will never find satisfaction in what life has given her. She will not find satisfaction if her life remains as it is. And so, as we come to the end of that encounter, we find that she's ready to accept the living water that Jesus will offer. And as soon as you place your faith in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit who washes you and makes you a new creation. So now what I want you to notice is the the joy and excitement in this woman after her conversation with Jesus. So John tells us later in the passage that the woman left her water jar at the well. So she came to fill up her water. She has this encounter with Jesus. She says, yes, I, I want this living water. I want to know you more. She abandons her water jar and she immediately runs to the village, so excited she doesn't think to carry her water back home. And she returns to the village, a totally changed person, full of joy full of wonderment at what Jesus had done for her. And as soon as she arrives in her village, she starts telling everyone she can meet what happened to her at Jacob's well. Her joyful testimony of what Jesus did in her life left such a deep impression on her that then it it changed everyone in the village. Right? They think to themselves, could this man named Jesus really be the promised Messiah? And so they go and they find out for themselves. So the whole crowd, it says in Scripture, goes out to the well to meet Jesus and hear his message of the living water and the coming of God's kingdom. It says they too believed in Jesus and begged him to stay in their village. One divine appointment encounter. 
One life changed leads to an entire village being changed. Now only in Jesus can we find the river of life, the living water that satisfies our soul. Going to church won't do it. Religious activity doesn't do it. Trying to be a better person can't do it. You need to look to Jesus. Submit your life to him so that the Holy Spirit can flow through you. And if you've never come to Jesus, if you've never given your life to him, I would encourage you today to think about doing that. The Samaritan woman at the well had a difficult life, a life filled with shame and wounds and brokenness and sin. But in Jesus, she found new life. The Holy Spirit, the living water, was going to come and fill her with joy and hope and peace and love and faith. And if that's what you desire, a new life, to be washed clean in Christ, then I'd invite you to come and speak with me or another pastor today. You know, after we take communion, you can even come up and, and pray with us. And we're going to take communion together this morning. And if you feel like this invitation from Jesus to have living water that always satisfies is for you, then even as we take communion together, use it as an opportunity to give your life and your allegiance to Jesus as you take communion with us this morning. And finally, for those of us who are seasoned in our journey with Jesus, can I invite you this morning <clears throat> to use this time of communion to reflect on the words of Jesus when he told us it was better that he leave for the Holy Spirit would then come? And just can you ask yourself, what role has the Holy Spirit been playing in your life lately? Use this as a time of re reflection. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And just ask yourself, am I in step with the Spirit? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up as we, we join in communion. <clears throat>